0: Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. This conversation was recorded on the morning of July 13th, 2020. It's our honor today to talk with His Honor, the Mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner. Mayor Turner is uh, at the forefront of fighting the COVID-19 epidemic. He's also led Houston on issues of race and inequality, and especially in the last few weeks after the death of George Floyd. Uh, He's uh, very much engaged in uh, dealing with uh, uh, the future of Houston as a city after all of this. And as mayor, he's dealt with a number of crises since he became mayor after serving in the Texas legislature for quite a long time. So today we'll talk about COVID-19. We'll talk about race, the agenda for reform. We'll talk about Houston's future as the energy capital of the world. And we'll talk about lessons of leadership. So Mr. Mayor,
1: welcome. Thank you, Dan. And it's good to be with you. And, uh, and I certainly want to thank IHS market for all that you all have been doing for the city of Houston.
0: Well, thank you, and our partnership with this city has been obviously very important to us for many years. I had looked forward, of course, at SEER Week at the beginning of March of this year to having a conversation with you on stage in the George R. Brown Center, but it wasn't to be. And obviously it would have been a very different conversation uh, from what it is today. You've acted decisively as mayor. You canceled uh, the rodeo and uh, other things to seek to keep the city safe. Now we're seeing this big spike in uh, COVID-19 cases. What happened?
1: Well, you know, uh, and look, let me thank you all because, um, you know, we talked, um, I think it was twice the latter part of February about uh, whether or not to continue or discontinue Sarah Week. And, and I want to thank IHS Market for just being an incredible partner. Uh, Sarah so Week, of course, was canceled. That's after 30 30 plus consecutive years. And the city of Houston. And then, as you mentioned, uh, right after that, um, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, the largest rodeo in the world, uh, that also came to an end. And that had been gone for like 80 consecutive years. Um, and then we, uh, the city shut down uh, for, for a little over a month and a half. And our numbers were going in the right direction, relatively speaking to other, other cities that were size or even smaller ones. Usage numbers were quite low in terms of people testing positive and the number of people dying. Um, towards the end of April, that last week in April, first week in May uh, is, is uh, when things the, the state started to open things up. I think we I think we opened up a little bit too soon, too quickly. Uh, and then, and the, when you start looking in that second week in May, you start to see the numbers started to ticking start ticking up. And so now we have exponential growth, a lot of community spread of the virus uh, within the city of Houston. And we are reporting now big numbers. The positivity rate is is much higher. The number of people going to our hospitals, higher, the number of people in ICU, higher. So we've just been moving in the wrong direction. And now we're seeking ways to reset uh, and to kind of get this virus back in a, in a much, much more manageable state, similar to what we had achieved. Uh, towards the latter part of April, first part of May. You
0: know, as we see what's happening across the nation, how bad is the situation in Houston now? And, and what are you most worried about?
1: It's bad. You know, we take it very, very seriously. Um, for example, with uh, hospitals, um, um, there a number of people. The numbers continue to rise. I look at the numbers every single morning uh, with respect to the Texas Medical Center, you know, it's the largest in the world. We've been fortunate to have the largest medical center in the world, so we've been able to take on more cases, and and they've they've done an incredible job. And so there are beds that are available, but you also we have to be concerned about the staffing, nursing, the medical support, all of those elements. You can have a bed, but if you don't have the nurses and the support team, then that's, that's just as important.
0: Are you getting more health personnel coming into the city now to
1: help support it? We're getting more help that's coming in. Uh, even the, uh, the military, Department of Defense, they're sending some additional people in. Uh, so we're doing, we're doing that, but we also engage in a very, uh, intensive marketing PR campaign to encourage people to put on their masks, to engage in social distancing, exercise, proper hygiene. It's not enough to just deal with cases as they come to the hospital. It's very important for us to slow down the community spread. So we're let, hitting also in this.
0: Well, let me ask you, you mentioned masks, of course, which is one of the major tools. Why is it so hard to get people <laughs> in Texas and Houston to wear masks?
1: Well, I think initially the messaging was very conflicting. There were, there were, some, there were many people who, uh, who understood the importance of wearing masks. And then there were some who viewed it as an on their on their individual liberties. And there are some who attempted to make it um, a little bit more political than it should. But the wearing of masks is not political. This virus is an equal opportunity abuser. It doesn't matter what your political persuasion, uh, uh what your social economic status. So it was some conflicting messaging at the very beginning. Uh, and then it was optional. Initially, locally, we couldn't, we imposed the requirement locally. Then the state removed that and made it optional. Now the state has come back. And it is now a requirement throughout, throughout the state uh, where there are more than 20 uh, cases of this virus. So that has been helpful. So now we're all on the same page, but in terms of the messaging and more people are now wearing them. Uh, but the question now is, should we hit the reset button for a couple of weeks, kind of pull back even more in order to, to, to work to get this virus under control?
0: What you're thinking about that right now as you're looking at the evidence,
1: From my point of view, I think it's it's important to reset. Um, Bear in mind that uh, this virus is now moving at a very fast rate, much faster than in March, you know, when Sarah Week was canceled, April and May. So it's, uh, I call it a forest fire right now. And uh, the measures that that, uh, the wearing of the mask, if it had been implemented much earlier, uh, I think would have been, um, would have helped out quite a bit. It's coming kind of late. So I think it's going to take a host of things. I, quite frankly, I think we need to kind of reset and then gradually come back. So I advocate a, a shutdown for a, a couple of weeks, uh, two to three weeks, matter of fact, uh, to allow it to, to give us opportunity to take the energy away from this virus. And you do that by separating and then gradually work back to open again, mm-hmm. because you do want the economy to, to, to open up.
0: And as uh, mayor, c- cities, what is your responsibilities as opposed to uh, other levels of government? How do you divide it
1: up? Uh, in March and April, uh, um, local governments, county judges, people like myself, the mayors, we had the authority to impose various restrictions or requirements. Once the state uh, announced the last week in April and in May that, that the we were going to open up. The state also took away the local authorities' ability to impose any of the requirements. So all of the tools, for example, that I had uh, prior to uh, May 1st, I don't have. I don't have those tools anymore. Right. So um, I appreciate the fact that the state, for example, has now put in a requirement for masks. I appreciate that. I appreciate that the state has given us the ability to place restrictions on outdoor activities of gatherings less than um a greater than ten. I appreciate that. Uh, for right now, the state has closed bars and clubs. That's a move in the right direction. I appreciate that. But quite frankly, we don't have the um the local authority authorities, we don't have the um authority to shut down things uh for even a day or or two weeks or longer.
0: Well one thing you did have the authority, you know, Sarah Week when we discussed Canceling it, it was a 6,000-person conference yeah. in the George R. Brown Center. There is another 6,000-person conference that was scheduled for the George R. Brown Center that yeah. you made the decision to not hold it. Tell us about your thinking about that.
1: Well, you know, it's just very difficult when you're dealing with when, when you're dealing with any conference convention. You know, you, you hate to see any any conference come to an end, but the state Republican Party uh, convention. Uh, was scheduled to meet, um, on the 16th through the 18th of July at the George R. Brown Convention Center downtown. About 6,000 people in an indoor facility. Uh, we were hoping that, um, everyone would agree to that, that would, that to go virtually, you know, just like you and I are talking. I would then, I would love to be sitting right next to you in person having this interview. But we recognize what we have the circumstances in which we, we face right now. So the hope was that, Uh, This particular convention would not occur, and they would agree to go virtual, like most conventions or conferences have. Uh, They elected to move forward with it in person, and uh, my uh, medical health director wrote a letter to me saying that if this convention moved forward, it would present a clear and present danger, not only to those attending, but to the employees, the staff, the people in the city, and the communities from which these delegates would be coming from. Uh, With that uh, in hand, um, I elected to. Uh, cancelled, exercised provision in the contract. That's defined force majeure as a, as an ap- epidemic, uh, and so based on that, we cancelled the contract. Unfortunately, they 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 did. They have filed a lawsuit, and, but the uh, the initial judge refused to grant their wish, you know to grant their wish, and then it went up to the Texas Supreme Court over the weekend. And I am told that as we speak, the uh, Texas Supreme Court has rejected their plea as well, and so um, you know it's not moving forward. But this is not the time for large gatherings to take place, especially in the city, uh, yeah. when, when we're trying to gain we can't control of the virus.
0: Is it too soon to think about the long-term impacts of the coronavirus on the city?
1: Well, we know that there are going to be some long-term uh, impacts. I mean, the reality is, for example, most of our conferences and conventions. Uh, have, have either canceled or been rescheduled from this year. So that's, that's a tremendous hit. You know, we did close down in terms of businesses retail, uh, for a period of time, may have to do it again. So we know that there's been a significant redu- reduction in sales tax receipts for cities and counties and others. So we understand that the energy sector, you know, has been hit hard. This is the energy capital of the world. Um, and, uh, and so there have been a number of layoffs or cutbacks, you know, people pulling back. So the energy sector has been, has been, has been uh, deep, has been hard hit. So we know the recovery is going to take some time. Uh, and quite frankly, until there's a vaccine for this virus, uh, everybody, and it's a global situation. It's not just something that we face locally or nationally, but it's global. And so we live in a global economy, the global marketplace and as long as this virus is here and there's no vaccine all of us across the globe are going to have to make adjustments be be more innovative and creative uh, uh and we're going to have to learn to manage to live with this virus until such time as a vaccine comes on the scene
0: let me turn, thank you on, on the virus, let me turn to the other major issue you've been dealing with in the last few weeks. Houston was a hometown of George Floyd. You spoke at his funeral. Yeah. Uh, what is your reaction to his death and the national
1: response as a mayor, citizen? Let me just say that when I saw the video, it, um, it was piercing, uh, it was hard to, 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 to watch um and you know uh i am an before i became mayor you know i'm an african american you know after i'm i'm no longer mayor i'm african american uh George floyd grew up on the south side in the city of Houston in the cuny homes a uh, housing uh public housing development um didn't come from uh a uh, um it was a low social income sort of background. And so my background and, and the background of George Floyd is very similar. I, I grew up in the hood, you know, as we would say, uh, and then I still live in the same, in the hood. I still live in the same neighborhood in which I was born and read. So I, I can, I can, can identify and could identify with George Floyd on on multiple, on multiple levels and what took place to him, but um, should not have occurred. But, it's, but it didn't just start with him. It was happening even before, over the years, if not over the decades. But this was a situation in, in which, uh, as he took his last breath and said to the police officers he could not breathe, he, was, he made a pronouncement that so many people in this country, if not people in other parts of the world, um, people could identify with him taking his last breath. And uh, the frustrations uh the anger, the raw emotions uh are clearly under uh, understood uh, and people took to the streets uh unlike we've seen in, in a gen in a generation and the fact that he grew up in this city uh went to uh, uh played uh, went to school uh, in the city, Jack Yates in what we call the third war, affectionately the trait um, resonates even more. I am proud of the city of Houston in the sense that you know people like others stood up, marched, demonstrated, protested, but in the city they did it in a very peace in a very peaceful way. But there are major reforms initiatives that need to take place. Uh, we want to remember George Floyd. It's justice for George Floyd. It's recognizing that communities like the one in which he grew up in. These communities, we need to significantly invest in these communities, uh, communities that have been underserved and under resourced for decades.
0: You spoke at his funeral service about what the city of Houston will do going forward. What, it, what, what do you see as the agenda for, uh, for
1: reform and for equality? On multiple levels, on police reform. Uh, things like the requiring law enforcement police officers to intervene when they see other police officers violating policies, procedures, and law, we put that initiative i signed an executive order that in, that says to our police officers, You have a duty, a right, a requirement to intervene uh, you have a requirement to provide a verbal warning where well practical before using deadly force that you have a requirement to de escalate before using deadly force, uh, that you can not just go and get what we call these no knock warrants, uh, and go busting in somebody's homes, uh, without, uh, the police chief or a surrogate signing off. Okay. There are a number re- reporting incidents of where deadly force has been used. All of those are requirements and more that we, that I've already put in place in an executive order, um, and, and, but that was the first step, not the last. Where I put forth this task force that's currently meeting on uh, reforms of our police department, looking at body camera footage, when to make that available, uh, all of those things. We asked our police officers to do everything, so much respond to people who are homeless, people who are on substance abuse, people who are suffering from mental behavioral health issues, people who are in, involved in domestic violence situations. So, what's the best model, the best practice to instead of sending a police officer to these incidents, sending other people who are skilled and trained and can better handle these incidents so we can reduce the amount of police in interaction, uh, especially when people are going where, where, where we need crisis diversion? And then, lastly, it's not just about police reform, it's about transforming communities that have been overlooked or decades, and investing in these communities, and if you invest in these communities in a real way, then you don't have to spend a lot of time in uh, policing and incarcerating people from these communities.
0: Has it been a challenge for you? You put the focus on really reforming police and police practices and what police do and don't do. Of course, there's some who say defund the police. How do you respond to those calls?
1: And every model, every police force in many ways is different in terms of where they are. I'd say one, side, one solution doesn't fit every solution. In the city of Houston, for example, let me give you an example. We have roughly 5,300 police officers covering 640 square miles. Okay. Contrast that to the city of Chicago. Chicago has 13,000 police officers covering 275 square miles. Right. So, In the city of Houston, quite frankly, I would tell you, we need more police officers, not less. What people, I think what people are looking for, they want policing that's accountable. They want good, solid policing. They want community, positive community interaction. Because quite frankly, Dan, you need the community and police officers working on the same page, moving in the same direction. They should not be warring against one another. And what people are also, what I believe what they are saying, is that Mayor, don't just be placing your, 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 you know, the investment in building a police force to police communities and neighborhoods. Let's also make sure that we are investing in these communities and neighborhoods to make them communities and neighborhoods of opportunity. Make sure that when you when you're looking at people coming from communities that have been overlooked, that you see kids, Black kids, boys and girls, uh, Hispanic children uh, that can can achieve and can be the mayor of the fourth large city. So invest in these communities so that these communities can uh, people can grow up and thrive and succeed. And, and, And I think that's what there's a lot of frustration across the country because there are a lot of communities like the community in which George Floyd grew up in that simply have been overlooked and people have become frustrated and they're angry. And the only people, for example, that they see on a regular basis oftentimes are police officers in their communities. And when you call a police officer in many cases, it's not always, in most cases, it's not a good thing. So we are asking police officers to do too much Way too much, and quite frankly, we are not e- in investing enough in communities that have been under overlooked and underserved, like the community in which I was born and still live in that 's what we are trying to reverse in the city of Houston
0: well, you mentioned, of course, of course, that across the nation, as the mayor of the fourth largest city in the nation and what is probably the most diverse city in the nation and as the most senior african American mayor in the country. How do you see your voice uh, playing out across the national conversation on these issues?
1: Well, you know, in this city, we are highly diverse, but you can be diverse, separate, segregated and apart. The question is, can you be diverse and be inclusive at the same time? Because there are a lot of diverse societies around the globe. But they are not inclusive societies. And then, can can you build a society where people where people can aspire to be and achieve their their their, uh, their God-given potential? Uh, and and can you build a society where people have their dreams and their hopes and their aspirations? When people lose hope, when people come to the conclusion that people that the system Okay doesn't care, or that the only thing that the system wants is to contain and suppress and incarcerate, then you have a problem. One of the reasons then why I have chosen to live to remain in the community in which I grew up, and I say the hood, and I say it in an affectionate way, is my way of providing an ocular, a, a very um public statement. That I, I'm here. I grew up here. I still live here. Uh, I'm not running away, but I'm but I cast my anchor down, and even, now as the mayor of this city, and even before, I need to do everything that I can to uplift communities and like like the one in which I live, and and so many other communities just like the one in which I live. So and and I'm encouraging I'm encouraging the private sector endowments and others to invest, not in an incremental way, but in a transformational way. If you want to talk about racial equity and social equality, people don't want to hear the talk anymore. They want to see the investments in a real substantial transformational way occurring in these communities. And they don't want people in, in the communities in which I grew up in. They don't want to feel as though they have to leave their neighborhood in order to go across town to take advantage, in this case, of the American dream. They want to be able to live in their communities, in their neighborhoods, and they want to see the improvements. They want quality parks. They want quality schools. They want economic business and job opportunities. You know, they want good infrastructure. You know, they want to see that in their neighborhood. And they don't want to see what I, what I saw growing up as a boy, my local neighborhood school being closed, sold to a cemetery such that the Black community could not grow. I mean, could not grow. And then I was bused 18 miles one way, 36 miles a day across town to some to a white school because my school wasn't good enough, so they closed it. So you know, they don't they don't want that. They they want people to recognize to be able to say Black Lives Matter, that my community is important, and they want to see the investments. They just just don't want to see police officers. They want to see the system, the overall establishment, recognizing that. Uh, Just like people have quality parks in their neighborhoods, they want to see those quality parks in neighborhoods
0: of color. Thank you for that. You mentioned the business community role in this. How do you see the business community responding to this agenda?
1: Certainly in this city, I have asked the the business community and others to respond in a very transformational way. When I became mayor, I put forth an initiative called Complete Communities. Uh, four years ago, it was hard to uh, articulate it then, get people to understand it because it was very ambitious. I mean, it wasn't just it wasn't just building a building. Okay, people, you know, you, if you want to erect a building, people can see that they, they can see the blueprints. They can, okay, mayor, how much does this building cost? It costs thirty thousand dollars. I'm just using that as an example. Okay, we can fund that. But when you go to when you go to the private sector and other places, and you're talking about Investing in complete communities, you know uh you know where' it's, where it's, it's just parks it's economic it's workforce it's business opportunities i mean all inclusive it's very hard for people to get their arms around it, and then when you're saying to them these are these are initiatives that, m- that the community people want, okay oftentimes what i what I've seen over the last four years when you go and ask for help uh People don't mind giving on things that they want to give to, okay. Uh, but when it's something that they may not be comfortable with, uh, then it's, it becomes very difficult. And what has come from, I think, from George Floyd's uh, situation is that people are saying, "Listen, listen to what we are need. Listen to what we are asking for," and then they are saying, um, "Be willing to." Uh, Assists in a very transformational way to make those things happen. I think in the in the city of Houston, I think the uh, the business community and others are, are beginning to get it. And because what I've said to the people in in this city, and I love this city, and I'm proud of the people in this city, the protests from George Floyd in our city have been relatively peaceful. When you look at other cities around the globe. Around the country, and relative peaceful. It doesn't mean that the same level of frustration is not in the city. Doesn't mean that. And you don't reward peaceful protest by doing nothing. You don't reward peaceful protest by saying, oh, Houston fared quite well, you know, so we are different from all of from the New York's and Seattle's and LA's and Atlanta's. We are different. No. It simply means that at this point in time, we've been fortunate. Right. And the way to stay at the head, the way to lead, is to recognize that we've been fortunate. And now let's hear and listen to what people are saying, recognize the needs that exist, invest in a very transformational way. And then I think what they will recognize is that quite frankly, it will be good for it'll be good for everybody
0: thank you for those powerful words let me just um take you a little further on the future of houston and just in a in a, and one other topic in the time we have left uh to ask you the future of houston as you say it's the energy capital of the world um does it stay the energy capital of the world uh what does yeah. Houston do, need to do to stay at the forefront
1: it's the energy capital of the world and we intend to stay there because it's uh, you know at one point in time then as you know we were talking just about oil and gas fossil fuels now we've expanded it's not just oil and gas it's the energy sector and now we even talk about energy transit transition and we discussed that as Sarah we and and now we've incorporated all the talk about uh, uh, innovation digital innovation within the energy sector uh, all of those things are startups technology innovation. Um, and now we're talking about renewables. In the city of Houston, for example, uh, just uh, uh, in April of this year, we put forth our climate action plan, supported heavily by the energy sector, BP, and others have been very supportive of that. Uh, we're talking about carbon neutrality by 2050, uh, working in an adherence with the Paris Paris Agreement. There are a lot of things that are taking place, taking shape within the energy sector right here in the city of Houston because, you know, the crown that we have worn in the past, being the energy capital of the world, we're not yet ready to relinquish that crown. One
0: one thing you've done that's very striking to me is the emphasis you put on innovation as part of the the formula that makes Houston a city of innovation.
1: Well, you know, Within within the various companies within the city, there's been a lot of innovation. But what we've found is that uh, we have not been at our best in creating this robust integrated ecosystem. And now, when we're, we're doing that, we're not just walking; we're jogging, we're sprinting into that realm. And the energy sector, for example, is working very closely with the health with our healthcare delivery system, the world class. Uh, largest medical center, so they're working together. NASA, for example, they're working together. Uh, Shell, for example, is um, under our our resilience, uh, resilience network initiative. Um, CenterPoint, for example, has done some things. There's a lot of collaboration within that whole energy sector. But when it comes to innovation, uh, we're we're doing a great deal to to attract a lot of venture capital. Uh, into the city of Houston because we recognize that innovation is not restricted just to the United States or the city of Houston. It's happening in the on the global market, in the global market spaces. And in Houston, we, we have the diversity. We have the young talent. We have the, the industries, okay? All of the things that are needed to create a very strong, innovative ecosystem, we have that. And quite frankly, it's right here in the city of Houston. We simply are now needing to do a better job of integrating that talent, working in collaboration. Uh, we've got some of the, the smartest intellectual capital right here. And we recognize that if we want to continue to be very competitive, very competitive, you have to work every day to earn it. You just can't talk about what you did yesterday, but you have to work very hard to continue to be competitive and to continue to earn the crown and that's and that's what we're working
0: on. Well, certainly uh, you were doing that as mayor in terms of bringing together this innovation agenda for the city. What I want to do in the this last couple of minutes here is ask you, being mayor in a series of crises, hurricanes, floods, George Floyd, race, and of course COVID-19, what's it like being mayor?
1: Uh, it is a privilege, you know, um, You know, you either want to be um, on the field playing or you're going to be on the bench in the stands. And uh, I'd rather be on the field playing than being in the stands. Um, You know, I heard this, if you allow me to use this example, uh, I heard this, this old preacher once say, this pastor, that God gives his hardest exams to his best students. Okay, I've never forgotten that line. You know, God gives his hardest exams to his best students. Um, we certainly have uh, been faced with a number of challenges within within this city, but we have proven to be highly resilient. And what what place in the world doesn't face stresses and shocks? Okay, yeah. but we're resilient. We bounce back. We learn, and we try to put ourselves in the be- in a better position, such that when the next event occurs. We'll be in a much better place to handle it. We've been tested. The city has been tested. And on several occasions people have counted us out. Yeah. Uh, each and every time they have been wrong. Now we find ourselves facing this virus like others. Uh, we dealt with Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, and the other disasters, for example, that you've talked about, Dan, but we are still hashtag Houston Strong. And, so when you
0: wake up in the morning, do you jump out of bed full of energy ready to take on the challenges or do you sit down and think about what the list is for the day or is it just the events just keep coming too fast
1: no you know quite frankly i've just um, you know learned just to take things one day at a time and deal with this day and uh, and uh, uh surround yourself with an excellent team because it's, it's not it's not a one person show uh it, it really does take uh, a team and it's not just a team here at city hall but it's working with all of the stakeholders in our city. We are stronger when we work uh, together, um, and when we recognize that um, you know um, we've been very fortunate as a city, as a city, um, and as a result, there are many challenges that will come our way. That's just the nature of that's just the nature of life.
0: You've been a political leader for a long time, but many of those years were spent in the state legislature, which is a different kind of experience now. Here you are as an executive leader in your second term as mayor, uh, and just what do you find as you think about it? The lessons for leadership, having been through, I guess we could at least count seven crises.
1: Quite frankly, all of those experiences uh, have helped to um, um, have helped me to deal with the crises that have that have come before me since I've been mayor. Um, you know you have to be calm in the midst of a storm, okay that's important um, you also have to be confident um, you have to uh, uh be very attentive you have to be you have to be out front people will take their cue from from you uh you have to be very upfront with people transparent that's important. you have to identify what the challenge is and then you have to come up with solutions. And then you have to implement, okay? And quite frankly, you don't have a lot of time to be going back and forth. So you assemble a good team. You you want uh, uh, advice and people's suggestions, the ideas, the recommendations, and then you and then you have to decide, you know, you know, what's the plan? And then you have to tell your team now. Let's execute it. Uh, but people have to have confidence in their leaders. And they have to, and, and there has to be a trust relationship. As long as you can maintain the trust and as long as people believe that you're acting in their behalf with the best information that's available, then people will follow and people will listen. And so that's what I learned in the different crises that we've met. Be upfront, uh, provide the information to people. Uh, let them know you are aware of the situation. You're knowledgeable. You can handle it. That you will manage it, uh, and then uh, you just move, and you move forward.
0: One other thing that you bring to it at the same time is a sense of vision that people can gather around, and your ability
1: to articulate that. In any crisis, Dan, no matter how bad it is, people have to feel as though we're going to come through it, and we're going to come out stronger on the other end. Okay. So you you have to be very clear with them as what the problem is, what it's going to take to get us through it. And then this is how once we come through it, then this is how we're going to move forward. Uh, And if you do that, then people will rise to the occasion because, quite frankly, most people underestimate their strength. And sometimes you just have to showcase you have to let them know you can do this. We can we can do this. This is the plan to get us through this. And then this is the vision. This is the plan and the vision as to where we are going. Uh, And then you have to be honest with people because uh, uh, it's not about one and done. Life presents a series of challenges. And sometimes it's not just one at a time. Sometimes you have to deal with challenges I'm just two and three. We're in the midst of the coronavirus. We're dealing with the George Floyd situation. You know, it's not just one, it's two and three things at a time. And uh, for some people, it may be overwhelming. Uh, and so you have to, in some way, you have to find a way to show them just how strong we are. Well,
0: mayor Turner, you're the right mayor at the right time. And we thank you very much for this wonderful conversation today. Thanks. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sierraweek.com.